This week on the History Files podcast, we've decided to discuss the Versailles Treaty, which ended World War I and many of its ramifications. We had noted that in our earlier podcast discussions that the Versailles Treaty kept coming up, so we thought it would be a good idea to delve into at least a little bit of depth as to what led to the treaty, what it consisted of, and what were some of the results. More importantly, what are the results of that treaty that we're dealing with now on the international scene? This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. Gordon, is for background, um, as well as contemporary, what good media sources are out there uh, for our listeners who want to get into it before, during, or after we're having our conversation. Well, to begin with, uh, I recommend Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. Uh, even though it was written 50 years ago, just halfway through this, <laughs> between the 100 years separating us from World War I, uh, and there's been some better research since then, which has changed some of the things that she concluded, uh, still it's a really, really good basis to get an understanding of what was leading up to World War I. However, insofar as what was going on in World War I and some of the things that we're going to talk about today, some of the results of the treaty which ended World War I, the Versailles Treaty, uh, check out With Lawrence in Arabia by Lowell Thomas. Now, Lowell Thomas, was he was a reporter, he was, uh, and he was sort of wont to a little bit of hero worship. And so you can't take everything he says as, um, as the gospel, but he's got some really good information there. Lawrence himself wrote Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Again, it's not dead on truth because, well, he had an axe to grind and he was uh, pushing his own viewpoint of things. But I also recommend checking out the movie Lawrence of Arabia. It's a marvelous movie. A lot of it isn't based on anything approaching truth, but it's a marvelous movie. And it shows these wonderful cavalry charges by Arab uh, light horse, and they're just amazing. It's wonderful. Uh, It makes out Lawrence to be a complete buffoon, which he wasn't by any means, but, you know, I mean, he, he really understood what was going on. He didn't just sort of accidentally show up in <laughs> Turkish Arabia. He was an anthropologist. But it's a great it's a great movie and there's lots of action. Lots of action, all right. History lives again. So what what were the conditions 
uh, that led to the Versailles Treaty being signed and get a sense of dates okay. in, in this description, if you would. World War I was fought uh, 1914 to 1918. It, it began in August of 1914, and about 8 million people later, I mean, 8 million deaths later, it ended in uh, November of 1918. The, the conditions that led to the Versailles Treaty uh, was the collapse of the, Ger- of the German army. The Germans had been fighting a two-front war. In fact, the reason they invaded France in the first place was to avoid a two-front war between being caught between France and, and Russia. That went poorly for them. And the odd thing was is they managed to outlast the Russians, the whole Russian, uh, their economy, their government, their army, everything collapsed in 1917. And so the Germans were highly victorious on that side. Then in the spring of 1918, they thought, boy, they had this war wrapped up, did their spring offensive, which unfortunately General Ludendorff, while he was a a brilliant tactician wasn't really a good strategist, <laughs> and so they had a lot of really good local victories. They failed in their effort to end the, end the war. So because of that last extreme effort, the German army ended up collapsing of you know starvation and other things in November of 1918. Uh, but they sued for peace based on these 14 points that uh, President Wilson had published and, uh, in, in January of 1918. So um, here's the German army, which re- had to retreat from France, but they didn't retreat in a, as a rabble. They marched home in, under military discipline. So it was an interesting situation where the German army wasn't really defeated. They were, but they weren't. They didn't have to claim that they were. So they, the Germans, one could suggest, sued for peace based on a philosophy or a series of ideas propounded by Wilson 10, 11 months prior and then the document that actually uh, sealed the deal, if you will, was the Versailles Treaty. Correct. Okay. Although, just as a one point, the United States didn't sign the Versailles Treaty. We actually signed our own separate peace with Germany later. So, anyway, go ahead. Good. It's, it's really good to clearly understand how the United States played into or out of all of this. Um, so, okay, so let's discuss Wilson's 14 points. What are they, and, and how did they come about? Well, President Woodrow Wilson was first and foremost an academic. He sort of fell into politics by becoming governor of New Jersey, uh, he, but he'd been president of Princeton University prior to that. And he came from a very, very strong Presbyterian background. Both his his father and grandfather had been, and maternal grandfather had been uh, very 
uh, vociferous proponents of different versions of Presbyterian theology. And Wilson sort of grew up with this, with the this uh, very academic, wordy view of the world. Uh, the 14 points, uh, well, Wilson had run in 1916 for his second term in, in the presidency on the slogan, he kept us out of war. That sort of suggests he's going to keep us out of war again, which he didn't do within weeks of his second inaugural inauguration, uh, he asked for war against Germany. But then he came up with, a few months later, these 14 points, which are incredibly, to me, incredibly naive. Uh, it starts off with the first five points, or pardon me, five or six points, are sort of a basis for for the, the rest of the 14 points. And of course, the last one is sort of a standalone. But the first 14 points are just general philosophies for how the world should work. Now, and, and I freely admit, I'm a bit of a cynic in this podcast in, in asking, answering questions, asking questions. I equate the, the first five points with the contemporary notion of a restraining order that here's this great philosophy and how we're going to approach things and this piece of paper is going to stop a knife or a bullet. Is 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 that a fair comparison? I think so. It it shows Wilson's philosophy and a lot of the the both the He, he, Wilson came into this whole situation with a great deal of uh, idealism and naivete. And so he thought that words meant something. And they do as long as the other guy thinks the words mean something. But like a restraining order, if the person who the restraining order is put on is, you know, actually afraid of going to jail, it works great. If the person who the restraining order is put on doesn't care, what's the matter? Gotcha. Okay, so there's there's my philosophy, if you were my take on it. Um, the the next several uh, points detail specific actions or considerations for individual countries. Do you want to touch on those a little bit? Sure. Um, Article 6 deals with the evacuation of Russian territory by the Germans. Article 7 with Belgium. Article 8, French territory to be returned to France that was taken from them in uh, during the, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. Um Italy, how to deal with the peoples, the various ethnicities of Austria, Hungary. And then you get into the really exciting stuff of Article 11, which is in the Balkans. And then the former Turkish Empire. So, um, 
and an independent Polish state. All of these <laughs> are bundles of snakes when you get right down to it, uh, especially the Balkans and the Middle East, the former, uh, the former Turkish Empire. There, we're still dealing with the effects of the Versailles Treaty, and those parts of the Versailles Treaty actually did come out of Wilson's 14 points. Okay. So we've got Versailles Treaty, we've got Wilson's 14 points, we also have the Balfour Document and the Sykes-Picot Accord. Tease these out for us. <laughs> okay. Sykes-Picot was a secret document that was drawn up between the British minister uh, Mark Sykes and Francis Francois-Georges Picot uh, with the silent approval of the Tsarist government in Russia. Now, what's fun about a lot of these documents that are pertaining to World War One is the only reason we know about a lot of this stuff is because when the Bolsheviks took over Russia, they found in the Russian State Department archives all these treaties, and they published them to embarrass their former allies. All this stuff became... It was almost like the Internet. Uh, here's, here's Snowden publishing all this stuff about what NSA is doing. Mm-hmm. The The... The Bolsheviks published all this stuff about what the powers that be had been doing leading up to World War One and during World War One. Anyway, so the Sykes-Picot Award effectively granted to the aspiring Arab nationalists throughout the Turkish Empire their own countries. It's supposed to be based on tribal areas, but they promised, um, well, they made a lot of promises, shall we say. What ended up happening through the Sykes-Picot and then the Versailles Treaty was France ended up getting, as United Nations, or pardon me, um, League of Nation mandates, that was the 14th of 14, the 14 points, by the way, was the establishment of the League of Nations which the United States didn't join. But France got Syria and Lebanon. British, the, Britain, the British took Transjordan, which is now Jordan, Palestine, and Iraq. They also carved out uh, Kuwait. And then there was also Saudi Arabia, which, of course, T.E. Lawrence had been involved in putting that together with Ibn bin Saud. And... Um, that sort of became a fiefdom of, uh, of Standard Oil <laughs> Corporation. So the problem with the Sykes-Picot Award is that about the same time, Lord Balfour had written a very chummy letter to um, Baron Rothschild, who, of course, was the, what you would call the leading Jew uh, in Europe, that oh yes, we're going to support the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. There had already been a Zionist movement uh, in Palestine 
led led by uh, anyway some, some leading Zionists and <laughs> mostly in Germany uh, buying land from Arabs in Palestine and trying to establish themselves as a Jewish homeland, which they were going to purchase. The British promised the whole chunk of land, the former Israel, to the Jews in Europe in return for support, both in Palestine and in Europe, meaning Germany, um, in the pursuit of a victory in World War One. So... Hypocrisy comes to mind based on what you're describing. It just uh, this little bit between the 14 points suggesting that nations have a right to self-determination and then the British and the French slicing up territory to give to themselves and then promising other pieces of territory that they intend to keep for themselves to two different other ethnicities. So you've got the British themselves and the Jews and the Arabs were all supposed to get Palestine. Only one of them was going to be able to hang on to it. I guess we'll sort of see which one that is in the long run. Yeah, and we're still waiting. We're still waiting. <laughs> the British got kicked out. So did Arabs. But there's a long line for that piece of property. So with these four documents or, or approaches... Uh, the Turkish Empire was to be chopped up, correct, in Paris. And was that help me remi- remind me, please? The chopping it up in Paris was that Versailles, uh, fourteen points. That's the Versailles Treaty. That's the Versailles Treaty. Uh, they basically sat down at a table with a big map of uh, the Middle East and started drawing lines. So these lines that they drew in the sand, if you will. Uh, were clearly thought out in terms of tribal relationships, similar religions, similar uh, worldviews? Absolutely. Uh, They took great care in making sure that uh, only Shiites lived in the same country as other Shiites, and Sunnis lived in the same countries, and the lines were right. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for clearing up that cynicism. so the they made no effort whatsoever, none. And the lines were just, oh, this is a nice straight line leading from this geological point, boom, down to this point, which, oh, let's see, what is that on the map? Oh, it's, uh, you know, 36 degrees north latitude or 32 degrees north latitude by such and such. Uh, yeah, that looks good out in the middle of the desert. And so they didn't care. But what did matter is that the British, because they needed oil at this point to, to start uh, uh, feeding their new line of battleships and, their, and cruisers and whatnot, they wanted Iraq. And so that's what they got. So one of the things that we're dealing with today, ISIS, the Islamic Caliphate, there's a relationship here. Absolutely, because these totally arbitrary and artificial lines have nothing to do with the ethnicities, the religion, anything like that of the people. You have a state like Syria, which is just as arbitrary and artificial a state as any of the rest of them, but it is run by Assad, who's 
at least put together a fairly a fairly comprehensive um, combination, much like most parliamentary uh, majorities are these days. They're they're coalitions, and Assad has a coalition of Shiites, his Alawites, Druze, and Christians, and probably half a dozen other groups that I'm forgetting, versus the Sunni. Well, this ISIS, or Islamic State, or the Caliphate, they, they're Sunni, they don't like that. And so they're attacking the artificiality of that state because they're the majority. But yet they can't fight against this coalition, which, uh, much like uh, in Saudi Arabia, you have actually a Shiite majority in certain areas. What other areas on the planet, if you will, uh, were chopped up as a result of the Versailles Treaty and the local populace had little, if any, say in the matter? Africa comes to mind. One of the 14 points is... um, See if I can find which one it is here. Talks about um, dealing with colonial questions. Um, don't have it in front of me. Which one? Anyway, the colonial questions in in particular were the German colonies. Germany had colonies in Africa and in the Pacific. Uh, Saipan. Saipan being one of them. The the African colonies, uh, Tanganyika and German Southwest Africa, became uh, British protectorates under the uh, uh, League of Nations mandate, and eventually they just be, you know, the League of Nations mandate went out the window, and they just became British colonies. Uh, Numidia, Numidia. Southwest Africa actually became a a protectorate of South Africa for many, many years until, basically, until the uh, the communist uh, insurgencies in the 1980s. They finally gave it up. Um, But there were also German colonies in the Far East, such as in, um, it was Tenzin in China, which the Japanese took, as well as Saipan, which the uh, the Japanese took from Germany. So, um, to the victors go the spoils. And so, the German colonies, and in fact a lot of their larger ships, uh, merchant ships, were taken from them, so they couldn't even further have colonies, or any need for them, because they're not shipping anything out there. So, the the Versailles Treaty had far-reaching implications in terms of uh, distribution of of real estate and and goods. Absolutely. And one I forgot was the Germans actually had a colony in New Guinea, which the Australians took. Okay. So everybody's getting a piece of the action. Uh, we probably even got something out of that. I don't even remember which ones. 
Okay. So it, it change of our lens of analysis here as far as the uh, economic conditions, the reparations. Uh, what did Germany have to pay out as a result of of uh, the the Versailles Treaty? Well, to give you a vague idea of what these treaty obligations were like, is Germany just like last year, maybe it was the year before, finished paying off their obligations to the United States from World War One. <laughs> Say that again. Okay. <laughs> last year, this is 2015, last year, or perhaps it was the year before, within a year, Germany finally finished paying off its reparations to the United States from World War One. Thank you. That's phenomenal. Now, there was a batch of time between 1933 and 1945 they didn't bother sending us checks. But, <laughs> nevertheless, mm -hmm. they've been paying on that for a long time. That's, you know, just shy of 100 years. Um, the Germans had to pay most of their gold reserves in their, their uh, central bank. They had to ship machinery, coal, iron, and in the process, they'd already lost like 26% of their coal-producing land to uh, that went to like Poland or France from areas chopped off of former Germany. Um, large part of their um, iron production was in the Saar, in, uh, right on the French border. They lost some of that too, a big chunk of that too. So Germany had had less to pay off their debt with, and they had pretty high debts, because the the British and the French and the Russians, the Americans, and Italians, everybody, had gone into horrific debt. I think the combined total, I recently read, of debt for World War One was something like $260 billion. They're in 1918 terms. And which is like four or five times all the debt that had been put together for a hundred years before that. One of the neat things, though, about the reparations that we got, as I said, we ended up with a, a separate treaty with Germany, but it's still, they were all, you know, intertwined. One of the things we got as reparations was um, a a crane that was built in Germany for moving uh, battleship turrets around, for fitting battleship turrets to battleships. And that came from, I believe it was built in Bremerhaven, and it went to Bremerton, Washington, which is only a few miles away from us. And it still stands there. It's, you know, well over 100 years old, and if they need to move something really, really heavy, that's the one they use, because it's built really stout. So Bremerton and Kitsap County are the beneficiaries of the Versailles Treaty. Absolutely. So was it fair? Was the Versailles Treaty fair? The Germans sure didn't think so. The Germans had sued for an armistice based on the 14 points. When they balked at some of the conditions of the Versailles Treaty, uh, to begin with, they didn't have a choice. The British kept the, the food blockade up 
against Germany until they signed it. So technically, when you get right down to it, you could say, well, the Germans were perfectly justified in tossing the Versailles Treaty out in 1934 because it's not valid if it's done under duress. Yeah, that's standard contract law in this country. Yeah, exactly. And the Allies had Germany over a barrel. They were starving to death. So, in fact, the British commander of occupation forces in Germany uh, demanded that the Royal Navy lift the blockade. He wrote to his superiors in London, demanding, because he couldn't stand by watching women and children starve to death. And what year? Was this is 1919. 1919. So, uh, yeah, the Germans did not think it was fair at all because they didn't feel they were any more uh, responsible for the start of the war than anybody else. And they're right. The, if anybody was responsible more than anyone else, it was probably the Russians. The Russians sort of pushed back and kept pushing when they really didn't need to. The Germans were looking for a way out in 1914. The British were looking for a way out. The French, maybe, maybe not, but the Russians weren't. The Russians, the Russians had their eyes on the Bosphorus and Istanbul, and they sort of pushed for the war, and they're the biggest losers of the war. Do you think um, Germany had they been in control of the terms been any kinder had approached it differently no uh the germans actually had already won two parts of world war 1 they defeated the russians and the treaty of brest brest litovsk uh was pretty cruel they demanded all kinds of things out of the bolsheviks who signed it but since Lenin and his cronies, the Bolsheviks, they figured that world revolution was coming pretty quick anyway. It didn't matter what. They could give away the store and, well, they were going to get it back next year anyway. So it didn't matter. But it was a pretty harsh treaty. Likewise, uh, Romania had been defeated. It was on the Allied side. Romania had been defeated by the German and Austro-Hungarian forces. And they lost territory, and it was a pretty brutal treaty against them, too. So if the Germans had won, they would not have been any nicer about it than the, than the British and French were, and the Italians. They, they just wouldn't have. So if you look at it that way, you know, well, tough. You get what you deserve. On the other hand, it's been said that that treaty was precisely the wrong tone to take because it was neither too harsh, thus allowing Germany to actually recover eventually, nor was it too light. It was harsh enough to make them mad and give them a lot of resentment. As Machiavelli says, never inflict a minor injury on your opponent. So, how would how did the Versailles Treaty, and I'm the, my fingers are in the air with quotation marks, the closure of World War I lend itself to World War II and the, the rise of National Socialism, um, etc.? 
the economic conditions that Germany faced in the 20s primarily due not only to the restrictions of the Versailles Treaty and the demands put upon Germany, but just the fact that their economy was in ruins after four years of war um, and a huge number of their young men were dead, like something on the order of two million young men out of a, you know, I don't know, was it 60 million or something, 66 million population. That's still a pretty good chunk. And so their most productive members were dead. Um, People were starving in the streets. And then the Weimar Republic, the government, was wrought with all kinds of internal dissension as well. Due to some poor policies on their part, and I don't want to get into too much of the macroeconomics of it, Germany suffered from hyperinflation in the early 20s. It went from, in 1914, four marks was the approximate equal of a dollar. In 1923, it was four million marks to the dollar. That's called hyperinflation. You could buy a loaf of bread for a mark in 1914. It took a million marks in 1923. There's pictures of people with their day's pay in a wheelbarrow running to the store at noon uh, in order to, you know, they get the whole day's pay at noon so they could buy stuff before the prices go up too much. There was a famous case of a... uh, a young man who was somewhat of an intellectual. He went to a coffee shop and he sort of hung around, decided to have a second cup of coffee and it cost him four times as much for the second cup as the first cup. Wow. So that's that's hyperinflation and hyperinflation destroys the middle class. They're savers. They're the ones who build the savings which they then invest in a bank which then gives out loans and invests in capital improvements, which builds the economy. When you destroy your middle class through inflation, you've destroyed your economy because there's no more capital investment, nothing to build from. And with the destroyed middle class, you know, when, as one modern economist says, when people lose everything, they lose it. And so they tended to follow what you would have been it considered a few years before extreme political uh, movements such as not just socialism but flat out communism, the Bolsheviks uh, and national socialism which by the way I want to point out that national socialism or Nazis are blood brothers with the com- with communism they're both out outshoots of, of socialism and in fact, when Germany invaded Russia in 1941, uh, Goebbels, who was Hitler's propaganda chief, said, now we will show the Russians how socialism is done. So, at any rate, the, the National Socialists and the Communists fought it out in the streets. They had battles in the streets of the, these riots. Um, and because there was no middle class 
to sit back in their chairs and puff on their their pipes and and tut tut this sort of thing that this isn't this this isn't the way things are done. That's the way things ended up being done. Uh, Talk about nationalism in terms of identity and how um, the sense of self is is ignored or dealt with, however you care to frame it, in the Versailles Treaty, the intellectual approach of the 14 points, and how does nationalism play out as far as considerations as what's going on now in, in today's world? Well, to begin with, uh, 14 points suggested that people's national entities have self-determination. They have a right to self-determination, such as the the Czechs, the Slovenes, uh, Hungarians, whatever. And, in fact, they had their own countries carved out as part of the Versailles Treaty. Czechoslovakia, which has since been split into the Czech Republic and the uh, and Slovakia, but you also had Austria and Hungary split apart, even though they had been under the same crown since 1526. So for 400 years almost, they'd been united. All of a sudden, they're split. But on the other hand, the national uh, will of the people, if you will, of Austria was not allowed to be followed because they had a plebiscite, which is an election um, to determine where you want to go. The Austrians had a plebiscite in 1919 saying they wanted to join Germany. They weren't allowed to. So right off the bat, he's like, well, yes, national groups have the right to self-determination, but you don't. You have the Southern Slavs that had been all kinds of different groups crammed into this new entity of Yugoslavia. It was, there were Croats, Serbs, uh, Bosnians and Herzegovinians and half a dozen other different uh, Slavic peoples that I can't think of off the top of my head, um, all crammed together in this country that effectively became Greater Serbia, because the king of Serbia became the king of Yugoslavia. I guess in that way the Serbs did win World War I, but where was self-determination in that? What did The Croats, who had been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and seemed perfectly happy within it, well, now they're ripped out of that and forced to be with the Serbs who they had been classically not exactly good buddies prior to this. And then we go back to the whole Middle East of chopping up different tribal nationalities, if you will, tribal groups. And they're, like the Kurds, are an excellent example of this. The Kurds have, for thousands of years, inhabited this little corner of the Middle East that happens to now be cut between Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. They're one nation, but they're split 
into four others. Where's the, and this, these are lines that were drawn in Versailles. Where's the self-determination there? So, again, we get back to the, the ideals that were proffered by Wilson were completely different, or at least uh, hard, to, hard to recognize in the ultimate Versailles Treaty. And what did General John Pershing have to say about the armistice of November 1918? Well, John Pershing was the commander of American forces, the American expeditionary forces in Europe in 1918. And uh, he watched the German army marching back to Germany with its bands playing and its glockenspiels spinning with their foxtails on them and things. Uh, with no real notion that they'd been defeated in the field. And he said, we're going to have to do this all over in another 20 years. And 20 years later, well, 21 actually, September of 1939, that's when Germany invaded Poland, starting off World War II. And to put it in an American framework, are are there... uh, times when American boots on the ground, our contemporary term, American boots on the ground have uh, been responsible for or involved in conflict or problems that have their roots in uh, the Versailles Treaty? World War II, for example, one of the biggest wars we've ever been involved in, has its direct roots in the Versailles Treaty, of course. Also, virtually everything we've ever been involved in in the Middle East, because the roots of the immediate problem in the Middle East are with the Versailles Treaty. Now, I'm reminded of a of a joke that was going around back in the 80s, and it's got Reagan, Gorbachev, and Menachem Begin chatting and they're having a conversation with God and Reagan says Lord will the will the problems my country faces ever be solved and God says yes but not in your lifetime and Gorbachev says Lord will the problems my country that my country faces ever be solved and he said yes but not in your lifetime and Menachem Begin says God Will the problems that my country faces ever be solved? And God says, yes, but not in my lifetime. So, (laughs) there's a lot of root problems going on in the Middle East that nobody can solve. In fact, I ran across a marvelous fault, pardon me, marvelous quote. An Adrian Witt who said, it doesn't take a genius to see that the world has problems. Responded to by Edward Blake, No, but it takes a room full of morons to think they're small enough for you to handle. So there's some massive problems going on in the Middle East. But the immediate ones that we're dealing with right now, based on lines in the sand, are directly attributable to the Versailles Treaty. What ISIS is doing right now, the the Islamic Caliphate, is they're erasing those lines. And... um, they're pretty much scrubbing the last remnants 
of the of the Versailles Treaty. Now you did say what other things did we have to do boots on the ground over with the Versailles Treaty? Uh, well, I'm not sure if it's exactly Versailles Treaty, but it's certainly connected, and that is um, French French Indochina with the French colonies in in Indochina, which ended up, of course, being broken up into Cambodia, Laos, North Vietnam, South Vietnam. Uh, Post-World War II, due to the Versailles Treaty, France tried to reestablish itself as a colonial power in Indochina. And after having watched the Japanese, their fellow Asians, trounce the French, the locals weren't having any of it. Like, okay, these Europeans are not gods. They're not indestructible. They can be defeated. The Japanese proved it. And they proved, the locals proved it to the French. And then they proved it to us that, yes, indeed, Europeans, white men can be defeated militarily if you really, really want to. Another great quote that I have to read on that is... Uh, by Samuel P. Huntington, who was a professor at Harvard. And he said, The West was won not by the superiority or of its ideas or values of religion, but rather by its superiority in applying organized violence. Westerners often forget this. Non-Westerners never do. We are really, really good at organizing violence. We're not so good necessarily at the aftermath. And that's what we're fixing today, or trying to fix, is the aftermath of the violence of World War One, a hundred years ago. We've got boots on the ground all over the Middle East, um, still dealing with issues in Africa. Um, you could say that the part of the conflict in Rwanda was it's not just due to. Uh, Versailles Treaty so much, but it was certainly European colonialism exacerbated by the Versailles Treaty. So, yeah. It, it goes back to the those who do not reflect on history are doomed to repeat it. Um, the problems that we're encountering if we look at them as only been in place or been an issue for five years, ten years, those kinds of things, it's very easy to not appreciate the root causes mm -hmm. and the damage that's been done over time. The next step, looking in the mirror and saying, how did we have influence? How did we create? What What is our role in this? It's just a rather sterile way of looking at things. Pretty realistic, though. The another thing I wanted to bring up, though, a direct result of Versailles was the whole breakup of Yugoslavia, and as you mentioned earlier, the restraining order idea. As far as I can tell, in my reading of history, the Serbs have never taken restraining orders very seriously, um, and neither has anybody else in the Balkans at any time in history, other than maybe the Greeks. But the breakup of of Yugoslavia into its earlier component parts of of uh, Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, 
Montenegro, etc. Um, the the fighting that was going on between the different factions of Croatians, Bosnians, and Serbians. Directly, you can attribute that to Versailles. Indirectly, you can attribute that to something that both the naivete of Wilson and the naivete of the authors of the Versailles Treaty failed completely to take into account is that although ethnically they're all the same blood, they're all the same basic DNA, they speak the same basic language, Croats write it in in Latin letters, and they're Catholics. The Bosnians write it in Arabic and are Muslims, and the Serbs write it in Cyrillic and are Orthodox. Nationally, they're the same. Religion-wise, they're completely different. The subtleties of nationalism versus identity and and how you defend or create your identity encroachment and those kinds of things precisely it's not in his lifetime <laughs> it's it's a very difficult question and how do you how do you solve it it seems like the only way to solve these problems is violence i'm not suggesting that's a great idea but it does seem to work. We well, need the old bumper sticker. War is not the answer. Well, what's the question? What's the question? And uh, and it and it seems that it's not the war that precludes finality. It's the agreements that end the war that uh, tries to achieve finality. And fails miserably. Yeah. At least in the, in the Versailles example that we've been talking about. Certainly in that example, it failed miserably. Well, Gordon, that'll do it for this week. Please tune in next week for the next installment of The History Files. Until then, I'm Dylan Honnold. And I'm Gordon Fry. With The History Files. Get to reading. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions. If you enjoy this show, please visit us online at badcatshows.net, where you can find show notes, links, and news about upcoming events. Please consider supporting our work by donating via PayPal or visiting our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad Cat. Meow.